Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, host of Science of Arboriculture. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. Today's lecture is by Dr. Tim Newsom of the University of Western Ontario. His talk is titled, Soil Mechanics 101. This talk was originally presented at the Tree Biomechanics Research Symposium in August 2010. Please try and remember a little bit about what I was telling you yesterday because it does fit in with some of the stuff here, but we're going to give you the overview of why we're doing our stuff and then uh, a little bit more of the root-orientated aspects. Uh, I would first of all like to thank Davey. They have been fantastic this week and also the three guys that helped us out, which are Brian, Ryan and TJ, who were absolutely wonderful, very, very helpful. So that has been invaluable for us and we're showing some of the data that they helped create. Why do you do it? Um, tornadoes. That's what we're looking at. So some of you may have heard that yesterday. Um, the Fujita scale is the way that we actually assess the intensity of a tornado. It is usually based on people wandering around looking at the debris field, be that houses or whatever. Typically it will be a structure and unfortunately structures vary even though we try and engineer them and it becomes very subjective. So the way that these are put together and, and the F rating from zero up to five can be quite an art. So um, we're trying to enhance the assessments of those intensities of the tornadoes. Typically, you will see this sort of thing. Um, this poor guy, this is Leamington, actually. This, this, this is the tornado that went north of you guys uh, probably about two months ago that went through Michigan, Dundee, and various uh, different areas across uh, this part of the world and did a lot of damage, and you'll see damage to structures, you'll see damage to structures from trees, or you'll see a lot of tree damage on its own. Now, for us, the, the wind damage is interesting because you see how the structure performs, but really to actually do something with it in an engineering sense, you need to think about the actual wind speed. What is the wind speed that created that? Because that ties into our engineering analyses and models. Um, that wind damage is useful for building and design codes, so making sure structures are, are, are done to certain uh, um, benchmarks for, for strength. Uh, for the insurance industry, because they're interested in uh, how much money they pay out and what the chances of this occurring. Uh, people that forecast for tornadoes are interested in this information as well. And it's also useful for folks like us that go to universities, and uh, that's what they pay us for, is to do research and mess around and have fun um, for these predictive and laboratory-based models. Now, unfortunately, the wind doesn't behave itself. It doesn't go over our wind measurement instruments. So it's very rare that you will find this. In fact, in all the time that uh, the guys have been doing wind engineering at Western and, and the time I've been involved, we've only had one measurement where we, I think we caught the edge of this Leamington tornado, went through a wind farm that happened to have an 80-meter wind tower in it and measured a wind speed of 191 kilometers an hour, which is pretty fast. 
Now, it's probably the edge of it. We don't think it actually went through the middle. So that gives you an idea of the wind speeds that can be in and around these things. And once you get up into the F3, F4 range, you're into the three, 400 kilometer an hour wind speed. So these are fairly significant. So we don't have the ability to measure wind speeds. However, we do have lots of trees. And often in these, uh, so these rural areas that we see damage, there are a lot more trees down than there are structures damaged. So one of the ideas was, okay, can we find a number of different aspects of these debris fields around tornadoes that we can actually use to give us indirect wind speed indicators? And that's what a tree is to us. It's another way of measuring the wind speed. If we can understand how a tree blows over and what the speed was that will blow over a certain tree of a certain species, that gives us one data point. We can correlate that to what we see with the, the damage to structures, and off we go. So we've been working, um, myself, looking at wind throw breeding of trees. I've got colleagues that are looking at bits that have pulled off structures and thrown distances. Uh, they're looking at the debris field and how things travel through the air. And we've also been looking at, at standard structures, if I can find the point, there we go, road signs. Lots of them around, sometimes they're blown over, they are built to a standard. Very easy because we can compare different sites and different tornadoes very quickly because of that. So we're looking at damage and, and wind uh, effects on these various different things to give us the, the peak speeds. And we're working in a group. We've got guys from UBC, Steve Mitchell, uh, people from Environment Canada are interested in this, and of course ourselves. And there's a geotechnical wind split between us. Typical things that we'll see, and Ken James mentioned this yesterday, is certain situations where one tree will be standing, another tree will be um, stem broken like this. If you go around the back of the same house, you'll see wind throw. So two different species there, but how can we get enough information from this to determine what's going on? And often the things that don't break or break in a different way will give us a blend of ideas. And we tie that into what we see structurally in terms of damage. And you may notice uh, that there is actually a branch that's been shot through the top of the roof there. So fortunately, nobody was in the bedroom at the time. Um, we also are able to get information because we see the wind damage and here's a, a typical root plate. Uh, this is Greg Kopp, one of the other professors in wind engineering, looking suitably miserable because often after a tornado it's raining and towards the end of the day. So uh, we all wander around. We've just got him there for scale, otherwise he's doing nothing at all. <laughs> now, we wandered in and said, okay, this is our, our methodology. We're going to look at these things as wind speed indicators. What can we find from the literature? Well, we've had a very good look around, and there's lots of data out there, lots of pull data, lots of stuff that's been correlated to wind speeds, critical wind speeds. Very big variation, although we know it ties in something to the structure of you know, DBH, things like that, and you can understand that. Bigger the tree, bigger the root system, probably there's a correlation there, so that's fine. But there is a lot of variation. There are also quite a few species that are not covered. So that as an engineer, it makes me a little uneasy because I don't understand why, where that variation is coming from. Um, more things you'll see in there, uh, various different um, sort of critical moments, uh, critical wind speeds, and those two equations down there are kind of, I would say, uh, approaching the state of the art in terms of understanding the critical wind speed and the bending moments and so on associated with uh, what we see for, for winds. And I hate to say it, guys, horribly empirical. There, there, there's some science there, but I'd say they're semi-empirical. Um, there's, there's a bit about roughness and some parts of, the, of the, the tree described there and the gustiness and lots of other things. 
But really, it's just a number crunching exercise. They pull a bunch of trees over, they look at some of it, and yeah, it's statistics if you want to put mildly. Um, so there's probably some better ways that we can do these things. Tree is subject to a horizontal force, so that's a, a typical drag equation that you'll see there. Uh, a vertical force from its self-weight, as it starts to bend over, there's a little additional vertical force, uh, sorry, the, the horizontal moment associated with that. So we've got a, a, a V, H, and M system, this horizontal vertical moment. As the thing tips over, there's a little bit more going on there because of the fact it's not straight anymore. So that's basically where I come in and start thinking about, okay, how do we model this? Now, I, I talked yesterday a little bit about foundations. Uh, that's really the, the approach that I take, and I'm used to sticking a foundation under a house, looking at the way that interacts with the soil. I've done some work with the offshore industry looking at how uh, platforms and foundations under platforms react to currents, winds and waves and various different things. So I'm used to these complex um, loading systems. So that's, that's our, our tree there. Um, currently we're looking at a, a sort of a static situation, so we're not worrying about the dynamics, but if we combine these loads together, how is the, the root system under here and the soil resisting this, this force that's transmitted down the, the tree? Now, I'm going to show you um, something um, from the offshore industry that I've actually applied to this in terms of foundation design. I saw an eyebrow raise up there, so it's not going to be that bad, honestly. Ed. Um, it's been very successful. Now, we're going to deal with static failure here, but this actually is a lot more subtle, and I won't go into it here. But we can look at pre-failure behavior. We can look at cyclic behavior with this. So once we've developed the basis of this, I think there's a lot more stuff that could come later on. So I'm going to turn that tree into a foundation. So there we have a lump of concrete. Um, we're going to apply a vertical load to that and a rotational load, a moment. So we're not worrying about the horizontal at the moment. And there are a number of very simple equations that you can apply that will tell you the vertical capacity. In other words, if you just push vertically down on that, how much the soil is going to resist back upwards. So what's the total V load that you can do that? So we'll get rid of the moment. So there you go. Nice, simple system. What you find is the soil does that. So some of it goes downwards, some of it rotates sideways, and some of it goes back upwards. Now, you can also think about this as well as being one single root being pushed down laterally, or sideways. It's, it's the same sort of behavior. So you push some soil down, and the rest of it comes out. So that's just the vertical on its own, if that's what all we were applying to that foundation. If you were to just do pure rotation, then the soil does something a little bit different underneath. It kind of slides around like this, and the, the actual foundation slides. And you would probably expect a little bit of a stress concentration at that corner, because that's the bit that's digging in uh, as it goes around. Another equation there. Don't worry too much about the form of that. Now, if you combine them together, which is what we've got on the right-hand side here, we've got the moment on its own and the vertical force on its own. So you've got two capacities if you were to just use those single modes of failure. And if you then plot up um, combinations, so you apply vertical and moment at the same time, you end up with this curve in here. And that essentially says that the vertical and moment capacity reduces if you now have combinations of this thing. Okay? So you can describe this using that little equation in there. Now, we can add on the horizontal as well now. And we actually have a much larger equation there. But essentially, that is um, a three-dimensional equation that tells you the states of failure in terms of the combinations of VH and M that will cause that system to fail. And if we plot up the current situation, which could be that combination of V and M, if it's inside this uh, little envelope there, 
It's a stable system. As soon as it touches any point along that curve there, it will fail. So as long as you can work out what the VH and M are, and you know something about the shape of this system, then you can predict when that foundation will fail. And you end up with a, a football. Okay, so that's a three-dimensional VHM surface. So that will bound the states of, of failure. Now all I've, I've decided to do is, okay, let's try and do this for a tree. So ideally what you do is you take sections through this because it's difficult to actually look at and, and visualize. Anything over three, three dimensions is, it gets harder because there are more ways of expanding on this. You've got torsion as well. So how do we do this? Well, numerically, and I said we have this lovely computer model this is what I have. That's like a whole little field of little triangles. Um, this is what's known as a finite element mesh. So we have a two-dimensional representation of the soil here. And the, the wonderful thing about the finite element method is you can take a, a domain, a large mass of soil, and I can tell the computer what the soil behavior is in each little triangle. So I can vary that tremendously all over that, or I can say it's all the same. But you can give the soil a certain mechanical behavior. And then what we've done to model the tree is something that looks nothing like a tree root system, is a very stiff um, concrete blob there, so that's a, a foundation. And then we've stuck some um, plates on the side of it. So these are essentially, uh, what we're trying to do is not necessarily model the tree explicitly, I'm trying to create features mechanically that are similar. So what I'm, I'm basically saying is that the, this bit here is the root plate, which has got root and soil behavior. And then these bits at the end, if I can get the pointer back, represent those little bits of root that tend to stick out from the, the root plate once the thing's turned over. And that's essentially what we have, if I can get the pointer back, in here. So we then apply vertical horizontal moment loads in various different combinations to work out the shape of that surface. And that's what we have there. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of that. I'm just going to sort of give you edited highlights of this. But essentially, um, depending on the, the vertical load and a shallow root plate, you will change the shape of this system. If you put a, a deeper root plate in there, so the, the, the actual amount of root and soil gets bigger, then you get a greater capacity. If you allow the root plate to pull up from the ground, in other words, it doesn't have many sinker roots in there, then you reduce the capacity again. And if you add the roots, or in other words, these plates on the side, the capacity increases again. So you can see what is actually helping to essentially add or take away from that system. Now, if I go back here, oops, sorry, wrong way. There are obviously bits of this surface that we can't get to with a tree because it, its weight in comparison to the actual vertical capacity of the soil is very, very small. So we probably need to truncate this a little bit, but that's something that will happen as we go through. These little diagrams here show you where the concentration of soil movement or strains are. And the little arrows on top show you where we've got either large forces or inclined forces, in other words, horizontal, vertical combinations. And you can see here, depending on the various different combinations of forces, VH and M, that you put in there, the ground itself will actually do, depending if you've got a shallow plate or a, a deep root plate, various different things. So you're mobilizing different amounts of soil underneath that, the ground. Now, the important thing to, to pick from this is that 
you might be able to create the same basal moment on the tree with different combinations of H and different lever arms. So that suggests to me that it's possible that we should be standardizing the position that we pull at. Otherwise, you're now creating different things going on the ground. And maybe some of the variation that we see could be down to that. And there are probably other things going on as well. Now, just to, to sort of take a little bit further, we then sort of said, OK, if we make the tree uh, a nice sort of cantilever, give it some properties, and we go back to that one um, tree that was blown over with my miserable friend stood next to it, we know from the structural surveys that the um, estimates of wind speed were around 30 to 40 meters per second. That was a kind of on the edge of an F2. Made some estimates here about the, the tree, uh, the root plate itself, the frontal area, uh, what the shape of the trunk and its length were and where it was loaded, and also made some estimates here of the undrained shear strength of the soil. And then um, plugged in some numbers. And what you find is that the critical wind speeds will uh, reduce with either uh, reductions in the undrained shear strength or changes, in other words, removing those roots. So we're starting to get something now that we can predict what's going on if we know something about the soil or we, we, we're sort of making estimates there based on whether it's rained or not. Another thing that if you've got further down there, if I can get the pointer back, uh, what happens if we play around with the flexibility of the tree? And of course, that will affect the way the moments uh, are expressed in that load system. So we've got various different estimates there. Now, this is only, a, I guess, a first go at this. We can get far more sophisticated versions of this um, predictive approach. I guess you come to the so what bit. Well, how are we going to really calibrate this and validate it? Well, there are a number of different things, and that's what part of this week has all been about. So first of all, going out and doing uh, damage surveys, that's either in forestry or, or in urban areas and rural areas after tornadoes, and just seeing what we can pick out from the root plates and various different information about the trees. Something that some of you may have heard about was our crazy idea of putting a small version of a tree into a wind tunnel. We have a very nice wind tunnel facility at Weston. And um, I laughingly said, why don't we put a tree in some soil in the wind tunnel? And after everyone went, you can't put soil in the wind tunnel. We thought about it carefully, and we actually did it. What they made me do was put plastic over the top of the soil so it didn't blow the sand everywhere. Um, but here we have uh, a little spruce tree. Um, probably about sort of four feet high, placed into a nice box of dry sand. So this is Ottawa sand. So even though the roots were covered over, you're not really going to get a plate with this. You're literally just pulling the, the roots through soil. So we were expecting to walk past this cough and the thing would fall over. I'd have no capacity at all. Wasn't I surprised? It's actually incredibly firm. Um, and I think there's, there's some interesting mechanical things going on there. Now, if you thought the um, tree down the end was heavily instrumented, boy, this was a lot better. We had a whole series of strain gauges on this. We had um, accelerometers, lots and lots of wind measurements, um, lasers up the side here. You know, this was probably uh, groaning under the weight of its own instrumentation. But, uh, I haven't had much time to actually do uh, anything with the data, unfortunately, because this was quite recent. But we've got some very nice results. I'll just show you a little bit of this. Uh, so we've got a, 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 essentially a, a wind time history here. And you know, we haven't even had a chance to change it from volts. But essentially what we did is we stepped the, um, the wind speed. And you can see this is the gustiness here. So we went up to the point where the tree actually flipped over. And 
Here we've got accelerometer readings on one of the routes, and you can see that initially um, it's very quiet, and then I think that there must be a threshold there where the soil starts to say, okay, I've had enough of this, and it starts to move around and change. So we're starting to get much noisier or much more vigorous signals in there until you get between uh, point F and G there, and it's really starting to, to change quite a lot. So there's obviously something happening there, but the interesting thing is you don't need to be right at failure for things to happen. It's not like the wood with the brittle failures that uh, Andreas was talking about. There are very interesting things happening here at situations where you probably wouldn't notice much going on with the tree. So not only are we looking at sort of the, the, the failure aspects of the tree, but we try to think about what's going on in terms of gust magnitude and moments at the lower stem. Um, how does that vary with wind speed? Uh, can we see any resonance in there? Interesting. Uh, possibly. Uh, we haven't really had a good chance to look at it yet. Can we separate any of these behaviors in the branch, stem, and root? And interested in the phase lag. So when the, the gust hits the tree, how does the, uh, the, the branches run, respond? How does the stem respond? How do the roots respond? Is there a lag between those various different responses? Now, you may have seen some of the um, data in the literature where people have put two inclinometers on sides of trees and monitored the movement of those in the wind. And you, you get this nice figure of eight movement where it's kind of moving all over the place away from that neutral point. Um, what I'm hoping that we'll be able to see, and I think that you can see glimpses of this, is the tree roots will do that as well. So that not only will they be coming up, they're probably jigging off to the side and doing this sort of stuff in the ground as everything's moving around. So you can imagine, uh, from what I was saying yesterday, in terms of energy going into the soil and it, and it changing things and moving around and changing its properties and the damping changing, there's lots of things going on underneath the, the, uh, the tree. Um, this week, as I said, we, we were helped out by a lot of guys and we did our static pull tests. Uh, this is a, the result of our work of two and a half days of instrumentation and then 10 minutes of excitement pulling it over. Uh, this thing actually went at about uh, two and a half metric tons. So Ken was saying probably twice what he would have expected a Norway spruce of the same size to have gone in UBC and the areas that we're looking at there. Um, you'll see why in a moment. Uh, this thing actually broke uh, at the stem. We were hoping we were going to get a nice um, plate and wind throw situation. Um, and really part of the calibration exercise is getting nice soil data and then looking at what we're doing in terms of twang tests, static pull tests, and pullovers. A um, little bit of preliminary information. If we uh, if were very careful, you may have seen the yellow tape around the hole in the middle of the grass. That was um, a little bit of... Um, sampling for us and some strength measurements. In the middle of the grass, you'll see that the shear strength of the soil goes from about 50 to about 100 kilopascals. Don't worry about the units. Um, if you get right into that area where the roots are, it goes between 100 and about 140 uh, at about sort of 16, 17 inches. Now, we can't measure any more than that. That was about the limit of our, of our measuring tool. So you can see that the tree has probably desaturated that zone quite a lot. That's my guess. Now, it could be slightly different soil. Until we actually look at some of the, the samples a little bit more carefully, uh, that, that may come out. But that's an interesting finding, and that's probably that's a really strong soil as far as I'm concerned. Go up in the bucket, look downwards, and this is part of the partially uh, excavated root system. And we were pulling in this direction out towards the, the, the clearing there. And we instrumented one of the roots here and one of the roots here. So this is when I talk about windward and leeward roots. This is what I'm talking about. 
and you'll notice there's a, a set of strain gauges here, here, and here, and three down in the other direction. That's what I'll be, be talking about. We um, had lots of spaghetti tied around the tree that was getting the information away from it. Uh, lots of inclinometers, two here, uh, two at five meters, two at 11 meters. And then all our friends came and attached other bits to it that I have no idea what half of them do, but we had a great time there. It became a tree fest, and it was wonderful. Um, so you'll see again, there's another image there of the, uh, the strain gauges. And everything was back here. And we had, unfortunately, uh, three data loggers going at once. So, of course, correlation between those is going to be fun. More data will appear as, uh, as time goes on. Just wanted to show you this quickly. On the windward side, we have the three sets of strain gauges. And I'm going to show you the, the vertical direction here. So um, point three was right by the stem. Point two and point one got further and further out along that particular windward route. And these are just strain gauge measurements. So they're telling us whether the route is in tension or compression. And compression is up this way. Tension is down this way. So if we look at the number three first, this is right by the stem. We've got a situation where this is starting to go into tension. A little bit further along the route, a um, little bit of tension there, um, but less so. And we get to the point here where we're at the end of the route, and the thing's going into compression. So we've got variation in behavior along the route. So something different happening at the end of the route. Look on the leeward side, then it's doing something similar in the sense that right by the stem, we've got a situation where you've got a little bit of compression. Um, on point two there, where are we now? Sorry, that, that, that's uh, compression there at point three by the stem. A little bit further away, we've got another compression situation about halfway along the route. And then the very end of the route, we're now going to the tension. So it seems that we have... If over two-thirds of the root system, it's rotating. And then the bits on the end seem to be doing something else. And that, actually, I was quite pleased when I saw this. It, it ties into my um, little mechanical model in my head of this idea of the little um, foundation with the, the little bits sticking off the edges. So it seems to be doing that. Now, the other interesting thing in here is that there is um, one slope here and then a distinct change in that slope. Now, to me, that's a distinct change. You may disagree, but there's a difference there. I'm wondering whether, because that is the point that's literally just under the, the thickest part of the tree, whether that's actually a stress concentration where the, 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 the edge of the tree is starting to push down into the soil and the soil is actually starting to yield there. Um, we'll do more analysis of that, and I suspect at some point in the future I'd like to stick some um, sensors or something underneath to actually see what the soil's doing. Okay, summarise. Um, as an engineer... This is horrible. Um, it scares the hell out of me. There's so much going on here. It's very difficult to determine. and It's, it's a highly complex problem. The fact that trees will self-optimize and they're sort of morphologically plastic and whatever other terms you guys like to use, um, you can damage them. They can survive a storm and change. And suddenly not the same again. The soil will move around and the root will think, oh, okay, I can go down here now or do something else or thicken or whatever. So th th it's quite difficult to actually uh, work out what's going on because of that. Their design criteria are very different from what an engineer would actually do. But I, I'm in awe of these things. There may well be some very good engineering um, approaches that we can apply to 
the whole system to understand parts of it and also the, 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 the entirety. Unfortunately, it requires some computing power. Uh, we're going to have to calibrate some of these approaches, I think, with more wind tunnel tests, lots of lab work and field testing. So um, you will probably see us out pulling trees over and doing various different things over the next 20 years, I would imagine, before we understand what's going on. And um, ultimately, we'd like to feed some of this information back into where we started, which was the Fujita scale. And I'd like to find some benchmark trees that we can actually do that with. Now, the Norway spruce at the moment seems to be the thing we see most often knocked over in Ontario and is what we've concentrated on because it's a nice, simple tree. And that's one of the locals. So, thank you very much. That concludes Dr. Tim Newsom's discussion on soil mechanics. If you'd like to learn more about soils and their effect on trees, the ISA has many resources, including the award-winning publication Up by Roots, written by Jim Urban. And if you'd like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this lecture is SA4973. Again, it's SA4973. Seven, three. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques, whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.